following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are um, in the middle of the book of Exodus. Uh, so if you've been with us, uh, you would have known that we're going through this book this year. Um, and now we have arrived at chapter 28. And I have to tell you, it is time to buckle your seatbelts because it is a wild ride. If you thought the Exodus story was exciting until this point, this is going to blow your mind. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 28, the priestly garments. That's right. 43 glorious verses of stitching and sewing instructions. And before you ask, no, Reuben is not punishing me for anything by making me speak on this. Actually, I have found, looking into this, this is actually a really interesting passage. And the priestly garments are a very interesting topic. But before we get into that, we should set a little uh, context. So, as Reuben mentioned last week, there are three major pillars or themes within the book of Exodus. And the third is the tabernacle. So this is basically the story of God coming closer to his people. So first he was, you know, he was in heaven speaking through a bush. Then he kind of came in the pillar of cloud and fire as he led the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he descended upon the mountaintop as the Israelites gathered below. And now he has set up his own little tent. He's got his own little piece of real estate within the community of God. He is tabernacling, literally tenting with his people. And so within this context, within this journey into becoming part of the community, coming closer to his people, he sets up this priesthood. In uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Athamar, so they may serve me as priests. This is, by the way, where Game of Thrones gets all of their names from. Is, is the book of Exodus. So God creates this position of priests within the tabernacle. This is the person who is going to serve God in the place where he is living. Now, what's interesting about the priesthood and about the priest, especially as we look at his clothing, and in the next chapter, which I'm not going to look at, but you should definitely read in chapter 29, they look at the process of how they become consecrated or dedicated to the job. As you look through all of this, what strikes me is that while the tabernacle emphasizes how close God has come to his people, the priesthood illustrates how big of a gap there still is between God and between man, between the perfection and the holiness of God and the imperfection, the uncleanness, the unholiness of humanity. So God and man still cannot cohabitate in the same place. They cannot be in the same space due to the holiness of God. The issue of sin is still undealt with. And so there's a gap. And so what is required in order for God to have community, true contact with the people, someone... Someone very specifically prepared for the job must stand in the gap between God and man. 
that person is the priest. And so enters, or as it happens, re-enters into the story, Aaron, the brother of Moses, picked by God to be the priest. And his sons and their sons throughout the generations, they will be the priests that will serve as the gap bridge between God and man. All right, so we're going to get into the, the uniform, as, you, as it were, of the priests. And this is actually a really interesting symbol of that gap. And we're going to have a look at it. But I thought instead of telling you about the priestly uniform, the priestly garments, I thought it would be better to show you. And uh, so I thought I'd do a little bit of Barbie dress-ups, if that's all right. So I just need my Barbie. Nate, can you come on up, please? New from Mattel, worship leader Kendall. <laughs> Guitar sold separately. All right. So, there are four major parts to the uh, garments of the priest. The first is a robe. Okay, so we have our robe here. Now, the Bible says that the robe is to be made of the finest blue material. This is not blue, I get that, but it is the finest robe in my wife's closet. <laughs> and pink looks just so good on you. And you can tie that up there. All right, so the robe is the base of the, uh, the garments there. And what comes next is the ephod. Now, the ephod is also supposed to be made out of really nice materials, purple and scarlet and gold and blue. There you go. Hands through there. There you go. All right. This brings you back, doesn't it? All right. So now, at this point, you may be wondering, well, you're probably wondering a lot of things, actually, at this point, but you might be wondering, what is the point in having these clothes? Why does the priest need to wear such fantastic clothing in order to become, in order to do his work before God? Now, there's a couple of reasons, I think, going on here. A couple of things. First is, this would have been familiar to people. Evidence suggests that the other nations around them and ancient cultures would have used priestly garments of some sort to, um, for the priests to wear as they ministered before whatever deity they were, they were working for. Um, in fact, they would have seen it in Egypt with the Egyptian priests. And in fact, Moses', Moses father-in-law Jethro might have worn one when he was a priest of Midian. So this is another case of God taking something familiar and making it unique to him. But I think it goes deeper than that. You see, if you go back to all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are opened. And what is the first thing that they realize when their eyes are opened? They're naked. And they're ashamed. Now, I, can't, I don't pretend to understand all of the reasoning and mechanics of this. But from that point on, it becomes almost a representation. The nakedness of a person becomes a representation of their uncleanness, their sinfulness. Not that nakedness is sinfulness, but that becomes a sim symbol. And so throughout the giving of the law, you will see that the naked person and all of the functions therein, become representative of not being clean. So, for the priest to enter into the holiness, the presence of God, the clothes, the robes become a barrier between the uncleanness 
of the, of the nakedness of the human person and the holiness of God. So much so that not only did Aaron have to wear these robes and ephods, they had to make specific undergarments, specific under, underneath robe, so that his nakedness wouldn't even touch the priestly garments, which I second, by the way. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. <laughs> More than we need to know. All right. What's next? Okay. On the ephod, on the shoulders, are two onyx stones. Okay, now these are black sort of gems, and on them are inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. Six on one, six on the other. In addition to that, he has to wear a breastplate. Yes, it is, isn't it? My wife and children helped me make this. And on the breastplate, which is called the breastplate of decision, there are 12 gems, 12 precious stones. And you're never going to guess what's inscribed on those 12 stones, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is very, very, very important, not just because we need to remember who they are, but because when Aaron enters into the presence of God, God is not supposed to just see Aaron. He's supposed to see the 12 tribes of Israel. Aaron is a representative of all of God's people. So God does not see Aaron the sinful person. God sees his people. And he is reminded of his covenant with his people. That he is to protect, that he is to make him his people. And he is to have mercy on them. If Aaron was to go in without that... Symbolically, he would just be Aaron and he is not clean enough to see God. But God has consecrated Israel and so he becomes a representation. So literally, the clothes of Aaron, he is clothing himself in the identity of Israel. He is clothing himself as an identity as the priest, the one person who is allowed to come to the presence of God. His clothing becomes his access all right, in fact, if we see in um, verse 29, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastplate of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Now let's move forward into Galatians as a nice little side note here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Same idea. We put on the identity of Jesus so that we can step into the presence of God and God does not see us. He sees Jesus, our perfect garments. It's fantastic imagery. Right. The last major piece is a turban, obviously. This goes on his head. There we go. And on this turban is a gold plate, or as it were, gold wrapping paper plate. And on that is inscribed, holy to the Lord. Another reminder to God, not that he needs reminding, but a reminder to God, a reminder to Aaron, and a reminder to all of the rest of the people. This is not just some guy. 
This is not just a fellow you might see down at the pub, okay? This is the priest. He is dedicated. He is set apart. He is holy to the Lord. He is other than us because he steps into the gap where we cannot go. He's special, and I mean that. (laughs) So I hope you can see all of these details that highlight the gravity of his position, the gravity of what is at stake when he steps into the gap as a priest for the people. You look ridiculous, by the way. And yes, and obviously this is not what the original priest would have looked like. We have a picture up on the screen that's probably a little bit closer to that. You need to grow your beard out a bit more to, uh, to do that. All right, thank you, Nate. Everyone give Nate a round of applause. You're welcome to wear that for the rest of the service or disrobe at your leisure. Here, you can take the box. We know what the priest looked like. Okay, we know the garments and we understand the significance of why he had to wear it. But what was he actually doing? What was his purpose in being there? Now, I bring this up because it's actually interesting. He is not the only one who kind of stands in the gap between God and man. There are actually three different sort of offices within ancient Israel, three different positions or roles that kind of played a a sort of similar role. They are the priest, they are the prophet, and the king, or leader. Now, the king, or the judge, or the leader, this is kind of God's field general. He is the one who takes instructions from God and leads the people. He'll lead them into battle, he'll lead them in their daily lives, set up rules and regulations, and basically run the country, okay, run the people. The prophet He takes the words of God, the instructions on moral living, and he goes and he tells the people what God is saying. Most of the time, what they're doing wrong and the promises that God has for them. And so he's kind of like this this Jiminy Cricket conscience person who is leading the people in a different way than, than the king. The priest, however, his role is different. He kind of goes in the opposite direction. The king and the prophet, they are taking instructions from God to the people. But the priest takes the worship from the people to God. That was his role. He was the one who accepted the sacrifices and he accepted the worship of all of the people of Israel. And he took them on himself and he stepped into the presence of God to offer them to God. He becomes the people's conduit to worship God. That is why I chose Nate, not just because I wanted to humiliate him, but because he is, as a worship leader, one of the closest things we have in the modern church to a priest. We don't have that gap anymore. We don't need someone to carry our worship to God. We can do that directly. God is in us. But at the same time, we still need someone to kind of help us, don't we? We need someone to stand up here and to lead us in worship. Not so much a conduit, but a a guide to usher us into the presence of God, right? That's the role of that priest. That's the role of the worship leader. And I will say this while I have an opportunity. I've worked with Nate for five years down in Christchurch, and he is good with music. He is good with technology. 
He is an excellent priest. An excellent priest. And I have really appreciated that about you, Nate. And you guys are going to appreciate that about him as well. All right, so the priest is the one who brings the worship of the people to God, to usher everybody into their presence of God. This helps us understand a passage that I preached on a few weeks ago, back in Exodus chapter 19. Now, you'll remember, I took a portion out of that, and I said, I'm going to deal with it later. Now it's later, and I'm going to deal with it here. After God has gathered his people to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, he has made them into a nation, and he gives them a commissioning. He gives them a job, and this is what he says they will be. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Kingdom of priests. So Israel has a priest, and Israel is a priest. The nation itself is fulfilling the role of the priest. They have the purity laws that are all throughout the Old Testament that set Israel apart from the other nations. They are holy, okay? Not quite as close as perhaps the priests, but as a nation, they are holy. So all of the rest of the world, we kind of think of them as like, well, they're the forgotten ones. They're the bad guys. God doesn't really care about them because he's chosen his people. That's not true at all. God has chosen Israel to act as the priest, to usher the world into the presence of God, to be the ones who stand in the gap between God and the rest of humanity. It was their job, whether they did it well or not, and not was probably the closer, but their job was to help usher, to help guide, to take the worship of the world and bring it to God. The idea is they would be a light and a beacon into the world so that people would be drawn to God, not pushed away. They were not shunning the rest of the world. They were supposed to be serving the rest of the world. Now that's all very well and good. But then Jesus turns up on the scene and he changes everything. He comes and he dies on the cross and he covers all of our uncleanness. He gives us this robe of righteousness. He gives us himself as our identity. And so he has closed the gap There is now no more gap between God and man. God has made us clean enough to worship him directly. He has made us clean enough to come into his presence, right? Because of his work on the cross. That's what we celebrated at communion. So you would expect then that the role of the priest is now defunct. It's not necessary. We don't need a priest anymore. We don't need anyone to stand in that gap. Sure, we might need a worship leader to help lead us and guide us, but we don't need priests anymore, right? Well, that becomes a problem when we get to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because he says, Peter, he's writing and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. If this sounds familiar, it should. 
This is almost a direct quote from Exodus 19, from when God called his nation to him and he made them into a kingdom of priests. God is doing the exact same thing here. Peter is recommissioning us as priests, as a kingdom of priests. As Christians, we play the role of priests. For who? For the wider world. But why? Because the gap still exists. The gap still exists. God has done everything that he has needed to do to close that gap. He has saved us. He has made us clean, but no one was responding. People are still so far away from God. They're so far away from an understanding of Him that without any help, they just don't have what it takes to turn their lives over to Him. They need someone to stand in that gap between God and them, to stand in that gap and usher the world into the presence of God. They need priests. And that is what we have become. A nation of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart, not better, but set apart so that we can stand between God and people and bring them in, not as a barrier to their uncleanness, but to usher them into the presence of God. That is our role. Unfortunately, historically, Christians have been less like a kingdom of priests and more like a kingdom of prophets. In that role of we tend to take the instructions of God and push them on the people. Now, this is a good role to play. Okay, prophet being taking God's words and, and telling people what God says is good. But we tend to push on them. And we tend to tell them what they're doing wrong rather than guiding them to God. And I want to illustrate a reason why here. And um, I want, this is going to take a little bit of interaction here. Okay. Now, when European settlement of New Zealand started, the Christianity amongst New Zealand was most, mostly Christian, is what I meant by that. All of, most of the Europeans and a growing number of the Maori were Christian. They were becoming Christians. And so we, our society was based on Christian values. We understood Christianity and we lived our lives that way. So even the ones who were not Christian, they knew what Christianity was and they knew Christian values. So the communication from Christianity to non-Christianity was more along the lines of get back on track. It was like the prophets. This is what you were doing wrong. Sort your lives out. You know, that's what people did. Now, New Zealand and New Zealand Christianity has started to dwindle. And what I want to do is I want to illustrate that with us this morning. So, this group here, and I'm going to say for decent guess, about 200 odd people in this room right now. I would like you, if you're willing and able, please stand up. You are New Zealand. Yay for you. All right, now, since the time of European settlement, New Zealand, the Christianity of New Zealand has started to decline to the point that in the 2001 census, 61% of people in New Zealand claimed Christianity as their own. Okay, so let's say the two outside uh, column sections sit down, the outside ones. You can sit down. 
So what we have here is we still have a vast majority, don't we? Most of the people in New Zealand are still claiming Christianity. Uh, now, in 2006, that number drops again to 56%. So I'm going to say, let's say that one, two, three, four, four rows in this section can sit down. So, yes, you sit there, very good. Yep, yep, you can sit down. The rest of you are standing up. Still a majority, right? We're still doing okay, but it's starting to get a little close. Now, in 2013, it finally happened. In that census, we dropped below 50% for the first time. So the next four rows can sit down. Well done. You guys are just so very obedient. This is wonderful. Okay. So this is where we kind of sit at the moment, where less than half of the country claims Christianity. So when our prophet voice starts coming out, and people start saying, you're off track, you're doing it wrong. We can, people start looking around and going, no, actually, we're fine. You know, we're in the majority. You guys are the minority now. So the prophet voice is starting to get pushed down. Now there's another problem. Because it's far too easy to simply tick a box on a census that's saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure, why not? You know, alternatively, I'm not, you know, I'll just say I am. Okay, my parents probably think I am, so I don't want them to see the census and kind of get freaked out. So, you know, I'm going to say that I'm a Christian. True Christianity, however, is much rarer. I think we'll agree with that. Now, there's not a perfect way of measuring true Christianity, but I think as a general on the whole, I think the people who are committed to who Christ is, committed to his family, are the ones who are coming to church on a regular basis. Now, I understand some people can't. I understand there's circumstances, but in a general sense, that's a good way of looking at it. So now we're looking at somewhere between 3 and 10%. Okay, so I want the first three rows to stay standing. Sorry, Gary. Everybody else, sit down. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Christianity in New Zealand. Now, can you imagine what they would do if they used their prophet voice on the rest of you? They would be laughed out of town or worse. This is what remains. Thank you, guys. You can take a seat. 20-odd people ministering to 180. Now, more than ever before, the role of the priest is vitally important. We cannot tell people what to do. They will not listen. <laughs> we need to usher people into the presence of God. Stand in the gap. Get in their lives. Help them understand who, it is, who He is. And this is one job you do not want to leave to the professionals. Right? Do you know how many paid ministers there are in New Zealand? According to Careers NZ, in 2014, there were 7,000. Well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, in this room, that would be one thigh of one person. I don't know about your thighs. Mine, not so much up for the task of leading all of these people. A joke. But if we leave the work of priesthood to the ministers, it is too daunting, too overwhelming. And we wonder why they burn out. We all need to get involved. There are too few of us to not get involved in this priestly role. We are a kingdom 
of priests. And it is no longer okay to just let that slip by. It is no longer okay to just say, sure, that's great. I'm a king, I'm a priest, yay! We must act like priests. We must put on our garments. We must put on the identity of Christ. We must stand apart from the world that we live in because we are different. It doesn't mean we don't hang out with them. It doesn't mean we're not part of the community. It means we are holy to the Lord, and we have to take that seriously. We put on our robes, and we work for God, and we go stand in the gap between God and the people He loves, and we usher them back into His presence. We reconcile the world to Him. That is our role. That is our job. We must do it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have mercy. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we kind of have fun a little bit with the priestly garments and, and, and we just, we enjoy just having a bit of a laugh about that. And it does seem to our modern minds a little ridiculous. But at the same time, Lord, help us to see through the stones and the weaving and the stitching to see what is happening there the identity, the representation of the people to you. We're so thankful that there is no longer a gap that you have put in place. You are as close as you ever. You are in our lives. Help us to serve you humbly, excitedly as priests, to bring those around us to help them understand you, to help them become close to you. Give us the strength to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.